uh, today we're going to talk about Sarah Coakley's book, um, and along with that, uh, God, Sexuality, and the Self, we'll uh, just uh, delve into a couple of subjects, uh, dealing both with the, the Trinity and Trinitarian thought as it's developed historically, and uh, John is going to bring in uh, Coakley's view then of how that's impacted uh, gender. Um, John, can you give us a give us a break a, a broad picture then of what Coakley is doing uh, with God sexual and sexuality uh, that kind of marks out what she's doing as unique. Mm-hmm. So the book is actually the first volume of a proposed three-volume systematic theology. So she begins somewhat traditionally or classically with the subject of God, theology proper. But the way she does that is certainly not a classic way of doing theology. She's talking about the Trinity, yes, but she's talking about the Trinity with reflection about what does it mean to be human and how has theology of the Trinity or how have Christians looked at the Trinity in the past? What has shaped those views? And why has so much of church history or even some theology been oppressive, specifically to women, because she is a feminist theologian, but also understanding the need for uh, you know, a nod towards or at least an awareness of the Christian tradition. So not willing to scrap scripture and tradition and uh, start anew, but trying to account for what has come before and how do we fit into that tradition. And yet, how can we talk about maleness and femaleness in a way that isn't oppressive? Mm-hmm. If I, you know, just on the surface that you look in scripture, it seems like there's two broad ways of seeing human sexuality, that there is the creation narrative in which uh, the the maleness and the femaleness constitutes human, you know, that is the image-bearing capacity, in my understanding, let us make, you know, man and male and female then, is inclusive, or in in fact, the the image-bearing capacity is dependent upon uh, maleness and femaleness. So there's some, you know, that along with uh, Paul's picture in Ephesians that, uh, quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother mm-hmm. and cleave unto his wife. And this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so that if you take those two uh, passages or sections of Scripture, it seems like that what is being described in human sexuality is something on the order of an ontological reality or something that's plugged into uh, and the essence of what it means to be human. On the other hand, if you go to Paul's picture in Galatians, in, in which he's describing a departure from the normative you know, ways of doing identity, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, that there seems to be a plasticity then to not just, you know, obviously we need not be slave or free or or at least those things need not uh, be definitive of us, but it's a, a bit surprising that Paul includes that kind of plasticity into something that he's elsewhere 
or uh, describing on the order of an ontological reality. Yeah, and it's interesting that you would bring up those scriptures in particular because Coakley notices this, uh, what you know might seem to be a contradiction in what Paul is saying. Of course, she doesn't take it as that. But there's also in the early Christian tradition a divide along these lines so that with Augustine and perhaps even a more Western, in quotations, uh, Christianity, what is privileged is this ontological reality of a difference between male and female. For Gregory of Nyssa, though, and what perhaps gets characterized, at least in Coakley's books, as a more Eastern way of looking at the Trinity and thinking about what humans are, uh, Gregory actually sees gender as being completely fluid throughout all of his writings. He's also much more mystical than Augustine, and so you have another contrast where Augustine talks about an ascent into truth as an ascent into the light and an ascent into where things make more sense, whereas Gregory, quite the opposite, will talk about coming to know truth in God is uh, an ascent into darkness and a loss of control. Now, in the end of her book, she tries to make those two points converge. But before we get to that, what I think is interesting with what you're saying is that in Scripture, we already have this built-in tension between how ontologically established is just the very fundamental way we relate to each other as male and female, and how is that open to change. For Coakley, she would say if what a person is is open to change based upon Christ's life, uh, the incarnation in the world, then certainly gender would also be open to the same sorts of upward changes uh, towards participating in God's nature, that gender isn't. Uh, in saying that gender is ontological, and that that may be true, and that it's included in what it means to be human created by God, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's static. Mm-hmm. The, uh, but it, it's not a passage beyond genderedness, then. But it is the sense that that uh, that in uh, participation in God, genderedness is still part of that participation. It's just that it's expanded in meaning. Is that the idea? Uh, yes, or redirected, perhaps, so that for her, and really, I mean, dealing with the Western tradition, gender has always been seen as the source of sinful desire, lust, uh, man's lust for woman and vice versa. And Coakley's point there is how gender is being reoriented isn't that we get rid of being biologically, physiologically male and female, but rather that those are desires or what it means to be man and woman is ultimately to be found in God rather than in the way that relationship plays out at times now. And I wonder what she does then with the image of the, the church as the bride of Christ and bride as the, and the, the, the Christ as the groom. Uh, does, is there the sense then uh, that human genderedness then, uh, you know, you would almost uh, wonder in that imagery uh, if, if there's not an uh, a kind of ultimate plasticity. I assume that that's not what she's saying. Well, I mean, in, in a way, uh, those images, as that all corresponds, we're talking about two things. At one level, talking about 
maleness and femaleness. And then at another level, talking about masculinity or femininity, what it means to be a bride, what it means to be a father, and what it means to be a son, or what it means to be a male, what it means to be a wife. And all of and what she's saying is those understandings are being redirected as we're taken up into God. Actually, Gregory of Nyssa um, says that we all become the female as we enter into the church uh, mm-hmm. in the very relation commenting on the very scripture that you're talking about that's in Ephesians and other places. Mm-hmm. But for Coakley, it's not so much that uh, she's not taking, you know, these metaphors that literally necessarily, but simply to say that when we are talking about sex and desire and gender and um, all of that conversation really plays into her definition of desire, that what's really going on is that we have simply a misapprehension or a bent understanding of God. Mm. So that as we come to know God and as we come to participate and partake of the divine nature, that what is seen as a problem for us, just dealing with gender and, you know, in this day and age, people aren't even for sure how many genders there are anymore. And so there's just these constant problems revolving around this issue in particular. She says that those just fall away because really it's about how males and females participate in the life of God, whether that's through marriage or whether that's through being single, maleness and femaleness still matters, but it's open to a Christ-like or God-like possibility. Let me let me venture into dangerous territory, and, and you can pull me back from the abyss if, if I go too far. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, is there in Scripture, uh, ad, you know, the possibility of a sex change operation? Uh, Paul in Galatians uh, seems uh, to be advocating that the Judaizers, in fact, might as well castrate themselves. They might as well cut off uh, their genitals. Um, It's an interesting statement, and obviously Paul's not giving them medical advice as to how to solve their problems. In fact, I I think it's just the opposite, that what he's doing is that they seem to be imagining that they can manipulate their genitals, or they can manipulate a principle of the law, or they can manipulate, you know, a mountain, a temple, and that through these, the manipulation of these objects, that in some way that is uh, uh, synonymous with salvation. And it seems that what Paul is, is doing, saying there, is just the opposite. He's undermining the very notion uh, that you're dealing with first-order reality when you're dealing with mere genitals or you're dealing with, you know, uh, mere objects in that sense. Yeah, I think, you know, with a nod towards Coakley's work, but also with a nod towards your work, the problem is that as humans, whether we're talking about desire as some sort of fundamental force for our lives or what that might be, is that we mistakenly will take what is not suitable to fashion an identity upon, and we will, to use your word, manipulate it such that we're really trying to manipulate an identity for ourselves. And so, you know, Coakley's way of arguing against something like that is, you know, uh, a life, even talking about gender, has to be ordered towards the Trinitarian God, 
who is obviously not gendered in that way. So uh, what if male and female is the way that we bear the image of God, but God is neither male nor female, then that is not the foundation of our identity in Christ or in relation to the Trinitarian God. And the, the, the idea of Trinity here enters in, I guess, into a, her work. And that's what I'm curious then. Uh, the, how is there, how does one, you know, what is her passage then, uh, or is there from human sexuality to a Trinitarian participation in a Trinitarian identity? Well, at a fundamental level, it would have to do with right relationship. So that the Trinity is a Trinity of relationships. And so even perhaps that's what gender is really about, is how we relate to one another. The way she explores the topic, I found very interesting because she does it through art. So she does uh, do a reading of Augustine and a reading of Gregory of Nyssa. Her reading of... Both Augustine and Nyssa actually may be the more cavalier part of her work, but what seems to be much more straightforward and argued very well is she goes through artwork from the 3rd century all the way to about um, the modern period. And she's not trying to say that there's just one clear progression in the artwork of depicting the Trinity, the iconography, but rather she's just taking what is the norm for each period, so there's always going to be exceptions. But what she notices is that closest to, say, Cal- actually before Chalcedon, before the Council of Chalcedon, and even um, perhaps before Nicaea, the way the Trinity was depicted was always as one of the theophanies of the Old Testament, first and foremost. So this is the Trinity revealed rather than, say, the imminent Trinity. Hmm. And <clears throat> There is no explicit gendering of the person. So a famous one that she looks at is from the catacombs of Rome (coughs) from the 3rd century as God reveals himself to Abraham. And so you see three persons, and the early church translated these three persons, not as some uh, Protestants do to today as God and two angels, but rather as the Trinity, these three people that come and meet Abraham. And they're not gendered whereas Abraham is clearly gendered. So there seems to be a point here. The three persons of the Trinity don't have beards, and yet Abraham does have a beard and would have looked much like uh, what a masculine man would have of that time. There's no hierarchy at all in the Trinity, so you really can't distinguish Father, Son from Spirit in any way. And this is the image that's depicted. Those sorts of images, or images that have no uh, person depicted at all, so they're just completely symbolic, are pretty standard in the baptistries and the catacombs of the first several centuries of Christianity. And even all the way to approaching the medieval period, you still see this type of image. But in the Middle Ages, as the church has taken a more hegemonic role in European politics, power, as the church has become increasingly more masculine, you only have uh, priests that are doing preaching and giving the sacrament, and you have um, a clear hierarchy of celibate priests going up to bishops and the Pope and the Western church. What begins to happen is the Trinity is depicted as the father being a very large and super masculine man. The son is usually being 
the son who is suffering on the cross, and the Holy Spirit depicted as a dove. So what is interesting about this, whereas I mean the Holy Spirit does appear as a dove in Scripture, there isn't a reason why you couldn't have an icon like what you have in the third century catacombs. All three are depicted at least as persons. Uh-huh. But now you have two members of the Trinity depicted as persons and one depicted as an animal, which just in a human conception already is implying less than. And it's the Holy Spirit who is excluded first, so that by the time of the Protestant Reformation, and especially after the Protestant Reformation, it's increasingly difficult to find the Holy Spirit, even as a dove, in these pictures of the Father grotesquely subjecting the Son to some type of torturous death, uh-huh. or perhaps even the one who is killing the Son. Uh-huh. Um, and she sees this as simply a sign of what is going on in the theology of the time and of the way the church is interacting with the world politically and so forth. Women are being oppressed. Not only that, but you have just people groups besides Europeans being oppressed. And the theology seems to be working towards that type of oppression, towards that type of hegemony of power and so forth. Then as she moves forward, of course, course those images don't disappear at all. Uh, but she begins to find images that are more symbolic. A famous one that she picks on is, um, oh, and I'm going to forget exactly what the image is, but it's of three three beings who none have faces, none have, uh, I think it's William Blake. Yes, it's by William Blake, and it's simply a, scratch, a sketch of the Trinity. This is done in 1793, but there's no hierarchy. There's no gender. There's no faces even on the beings that are depicted. And her point is this type of image actually invites the one who is looking at the artwork into the image as a participant of what is really going on? What am I looking at? And that's the way our Christianity should function, that rather than theology being oppressive and uh, being completely definitive, theology is inviting us into the life of the Trinity, a life of participation where we have to acknowledge some type of lack of control. And in this way, that should do away with oppression of women in one sense, but an oppression of any person, because there really is no lessers than us. We are acknowledging that we all uh, must enter into this divine participation in the life of the Trinity for our salvation, and really to become humans. I mean, that's uh, 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 several things uh, hitting me there. One, in, in a psychoanalytic perspective, but also then in, in a postmodern understanding, a phallocentrism uh, that seems to be coming through. And phallocentrism you can uh, equate with an ontotheology uh, and, yep. you know, the, the sort of thing that you just want to say at all. Uh, if you think of a Lacanian or Zizekian notion of uh, the male and the female uh, uh, you know, orientation that the the masculine orientation is the one that you get in. Uh, certainly, it comes out most clearly in modernity, but I, I wouldn't uh, you know confine it to modernity. And that is the idea of you're going to, in some way, say it all. You're going to give an exhaustive explanation. Mm-hmm. And of course, is that is she specifically then? 
uh, equating this development with the development of an ontotheological, phallocentric kind of understanding. Yes, absolutely. That one of the so her way of doing theology in this proposed three volume systematic theology is one that is directly taking on the critiques that have been posed against systematic theology in general. One of those being that it always ends up being an onto theology. And instead she's proposing a theology on the way. So one that we enter into and that necessarily includes Christian practice, especially through prayer. Let's say very quickly that uh, what 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 do we mean by onto theology? I actually think that you said it really well just a moment ago that it's it's a type of theology of everything, but not simply a theology of everything in the sense that we might engage the world theologically, but rather that we're going to construct a foundational system. Uh, upon all which we can continue to build or that is going to be able to categorize everything, explain everything. And so she very much wants to do what she calls a theology total. That is a theology that addresses the human situation completely, but one that is uh, humble as well. So it acknowledges that as we do that sort of theology, it's a way of life. It's something that we enter into. It's not something that can be done from an ivory tower, and it's certainly not a system that we're imposing. I mean, from a, a purely psychoanalytic perspective, what she's proposing, and and uh, you know, would be in a Lacanian understanding, would privilege this, but maybe maybe it's not necessary to bring it in. And that is the idea that the the feminine is a privileged position in regard to the law in the the feminine is such you know if you think in Paul's picture in Romans 7 1 to 6 that it's the identity with Christ the one who's died which is actually in other words you're you're you find yourself in Christ uh, in the the one from whom the law proceeds there's not an attempt then uh, from that understanding uh, to say it all, in other words, is she consciously posing uh, her mode of theology uh, with a kind of feminine perspective? Um, yes, but she does so tentatively. So I'm not for sure exactly the extent of her awareness of Lacan. She's definitely aware of Lacan, and she's uh, engaging in feminist Lacanian psychoanalysts that are or come after him in France. But she's also aware of the danger of simply reifying the feminine as a category. So at the end, she wants to be Christian. But she is certainly aware of Lacan's critique and that what we might associate with the masculine is this type of oppressive, hegemonic ontotheology. And that's all Lacan, or at least that's my reading of Lacan. He's not literally talking about you know, genitals, and uh, but oh, he's, yeah, talking, yeah. he's talking about orientations. Yes. Well, I think in, even in that sense, she's still saying there's something beyond simply the feminine. <laughs> As much you do in your uh, book, there, there's Romans 8, and actually that's right. the model of prayer that Coakley will use as a Romans 8 model of prayer, mm-hmm. because it's a Trinitarian model. I'm curious then, does she tie a particular view of atonement in as there is a departure from 
uh, you know, uh, uh, an early understanding of the Trinity, and then there's this more masculine, oppressive uh, Trinity, uh, does this then give rise to an alternative atonement theory? Uh, yes, only in mention, though, because I imagine that the person and work of Christ come in volume two. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's not working that out. But, I mean, it, one, it's blatantly obvious in the artwork that during the Reformation, the way, especially Protestant art depicting the Trinity changes, is that all of the sudden you see penal substitution painted. Mm-hmm. And so that's obvious, yes. And, uh, you know, the, the picture then uh, that she's coming to, I think is one that many people have come to. I think I've just recently gone back to John Howard Yoder's uh, uh, Then Now We See Jesus. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Um, And, and of course, this is, I don't know what you call this. Uh, You know, is it postmodern? I I tend to want to get rid of that notion because it, it's it, but it, there is then a very uh, 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 clear understanding in what Yoder's doing, and it sounds like sounds like what Coakley is doing uh, in regard to truth. That truth, then the truth of Christ, the truth of Christianity, uh, is not one that we can uh, own or you know have in in some uh, obtain or, but. You you use the language of it's truth on the way, mm-hmm. yeah, which uh, is a phrase for Kierkegaard. Yeah, is she quoting Kierkegaard there? Um, no, she isn't actually. Uh, though I mean, I'm sure she's aware of Kierkegaard uh, being a Cambridge professor of theology, but I think that he, you know, captures this so well to say that truth is on the way, and. What we what is communicated to the Christian who is trying to follow Christ isn't knowledge but existence, because we are in existence and we are trying to follow the one who is not in existence. Though Kierkegaard will distinguish that's his distinction between God and of course created things, meaning that God is existence. So as Paul says in Colossians, we move and live and breathe within God. We exist within God. And I think that's the idea there. So if what truth is, is Christ, and we are trying to become more and more like God and participating in this inter-Trinitarian life, the way we do that is by existing in truth. So it's not something that we stand on the outside of. Now, the the uh, the one cr- uh, critique that I, I think you, you're bringing uh, and you've talked. We've talked about this before. Is her notion of desire, hmm. um, and that that was the thing that I've tried to do is that there there is a desire that I think finds itself. You know uh, that that sexuality is is clearly uh, the mode of expression. But of course, what the desire is ultimately aimed at. In you know even in the Old Testament when it's talking about uh, idolatry and it's using sexual symbols for it, it's not really sexuality, but it's this all-consuming desire. And 
you know, the thing that I would do is, uh, and I think it's necessary to do, is what I think Paul is doing in Romans 7 and 8. He uses the language of desire in Romans 7 when he's talking about his, you know, desire Mm -hmm. for himself or whatever that is in Romans 7. But that language is completely dropped in Romans 8. But you're saying that she she uh, uses the language of desire all the way through. Yeah, I, this stems from, and this is the part that I'm just unsure about, as I guess I could just say that, is her trying to find a convergence in Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine. So Augustine uh, is very leery of thinking that there's a quick transition from who we are apart from Christ to who we are after we have been infused with God's grace. So the metaphors that he uses, I think, are wonderful. You know, our hearts of stone have been removed, and we now have a heart of flesh that can love God. Or our hearts are restless until they rest in God. He's not using the language of desire per se, because he's talking about a change that happens to us through God's grace. And again, for Augustine, it's not that we attain God in and himself as God attains himself. Rather, there's still this room for theosis or deification. Augustine, actually one of the only Western writers that, uh, in this period that really uses the word deification heavily and has a theology of it. But he's so aware of what grace's role is in that process of deification, even though perhaps he doesn't clearly spell that out. So it, you know, it takes later people. Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa, is more so advocating for a type of mysticism where the end of that desire is God, but it's also darkness. It's uh, the language of mysticism. And I'm not for sure that the language that Gregory uses or his view really does match up with Augustine's in the same way. So that the way he's talking, or the way you might talk, is this desire that could lead to just being illicit desire. And Coakley's aware of this, though she's not advocating that we drop the term or nuance it in any other way. But she is definitely aware of the fact that this type of desire and loss of control that we might experience in prayer and living this life uh, where we are ultimately trying to give control to God could actually end up just being you know, illicit human desire let loose. Um, so she's, she's not unaware of the problem, but I do think that's something in the book that at least I would want to approach differently. She's trying to fuse uh, Nyssa's mysticism with, uh, uh, you know, Augustine's notion of, of a changed heart. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Augustine and granted um, he just doesn't, work all of this out for us. He more so is speaking in doctrines than he is in systematic explanations, but is so aware that he needs to say it every step of the way. We only, we're relying on God's grace. There is a positive aspect of God's grace in our lives, faith, hope, and love that reorients our willing and our intellect and our judgments and so on and so forth. Whereas Gregory of Nyssa simply isn't that type of thinker. I guess the the way to get at you know uh, a, a proper desire, if we're going to use that language, I, I think that 
you know, this is the problem in Lacan. He has two words, but there is not clear what the difference between jouissance and a, you know, proper jouissance, he says, is just pure evil, mm-hmm. uh, that it is just pure death drive. Um, and it would seem that it would be precisely the opposite to pass from an illicit desire to a proper desiring of God uh, to, the, that the passage is not one into mysticism, but it seems to be a passage out of mysticism. Uh, I would argue you can you can hmm. take this apart a little bit, but in other words, uh, part of what's happening, I think, in illicit desire is we 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 something has a handle on us, or or something gets a grip on us. And we have no way of articulating this thing or directing it so that it becomes murderous, death-dealing, and oppressive. But when we direct that desire, we understand that ultimately it's a desire for God. It's not a passage into mysticism, but it's a recognition that human desires then in some way are simply second place to or a, uh, you know, they are, they take their proper place when we understand that these things are not final. And I'm, I'm afraid that what happens in notions of ecstatic union with God in some sort of mystical sense is they're privileging this kind of dark mysticism. And I, it's almost as within Lacan. Uh, I'm not sure how you d- d- distinguish that from just out and out evil. Yeah, well, you couldn't accept on like just a level of practice, but by doing that, I think you haven't solved any problems. So, yeah, I would, I think that may be a very valid critique. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks about desire in particular, and well, what does even deification mean? Because obviously, maybe there is room for some type of healthy uh, desire or hope or something like that that's in play. And if we still were to use the word desire, I think it would have to be a desire that is always satisfied. So that deification is a process, it's ongoing, but it's not one where we are left unsatisfied in the process, such as like illicit desire would be. You only desire an object as long as you don't have it. Once you have it, you find out that you didn't really desire the object, you just desire in general. And so... um, it would have to be something different. Bernard Lonergan uses a phrase that I find very helpful when just talking about deification in general. He calls it a created communication of the divine nature. Created because it's created in us. In other words, we as human beings don't ever attain God as God is in himself, meaning we still remain humans even as we have this union with God. And I think that's a very good point to make because and sometimes gets blurred in mysticism forms of mysticism it's a communication because god's nature is something that god has access to and we don't just by the very definition of what we're talking about and so it has to be communicated to us and that's through a grace and then of course the divine nature is just who god is in himself so that we do attain god qua god but we do so as created beings as humans and we do so according to the order that God has given in his grace. And I think that's much more helpful than conversations about 
just desire in general or darkness or ascending into darkness even rather than descending into darkness because I'm just never for sure really what gets practiced or what's imagined there. And, you know, the the thing that I see at least happening in Romans 7 and 8 is that the, the word desire does not appear in the Greek uh, as far as I know. Uh, and what displaces it, and I think that's what's happening between those two chapters, is that hope displaces desire. And hope then, certainly it has some of the characteristics of desire, uh, it, it's something, though, that is consciously uh, unfulfilled. In other words, hope is a longing, but it, it, within the definition of hope, you understand this is a, a, a longing that, uh, by its very nature, you can't see God. You can't, uh, you know, you can't attain this thing. And so it's a longing that is uh, uh, you delay it. You, you're sad. You know, it's a, yeah. uh, 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 there, there is a certainty that comes with it. Whereas with desire, there is a longing. Uh, but the presumption is that you can fulfill this thing that you can. And that's my, always my danger with the, uh, fear of the beatific vision is that I'm afraid that what you're talking about is a longing that is fulfilled, a desire that is satisfied, when in fact that's not something that we have access to this side of eternity. I'm not sure about the other side of eternity, uh, but this side of eternity, all we have is hope and faith. Well, actually, a good Catholic would define the beatific vision within the created communication of the divine nature, so that it isn't something that we even have until we the faith becomes sight, so to speak, is the metaphor there of vision. But it's not really something that you're seeing, because of course God is spirit, but rather it's just being in the presence of God. But even there, a good Catholic is careful to distinguish that you're experiencing that union with God as a created being. You, Your substance hasn't changed, so to speak. So it's not a, a loss of the individual into the one or anything like that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I uh, and and I understand that. I understand that that there is a legitimate usage of of that understanding. But I'm afraid what happens in an apophatic theology is in fact an illegitimate usage. Yeah, and so that's the part of Coakley's work that I, makes me most uneasy is that you know Gregory of Nyssa is clearly an apophatic mystic. And Augustine doesn't seem to be that. <laughs> and the, trying to merge the two, trying to make them converge maybe too much. And, and you have to admire the project that we want to hold the mystery of God. We don't want to relinquish the mystery. And we want to, in fact, hold our own understanding and apprehension of God in some way in advance of you know, a full achievement of that, not a presumption that we can have that. But I think that, that there are two different ways of doing that, and that's all I'm saying. Let's, yeah. that we, need, we need to distinguish that. Yeah, the hope is, you know, it's the attainment of an unfulfilled reality so that we have access to a reality that ha will exist but doesn't exist, and yet it already is affecting us. And I think that's Romans 8. That's what Coakley is seeing happening in the picture of prayer in Romans 8. And this is where she ends up. And so 
if her methods to get to this point may be a little bit dubious with Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, I think the end point of the book is one that should be taken and noted as uh, good. And that is that in Romans 8, what we have, her last definition of what it means to lose control is this idea that we enter into a relationship with God that we only have in Christ, so that's already a little bit of a loss of control. We only we acknowledge God as Father in Christ, but this union or this uh, participation is only complete as the Spirit intercedes and prays for us in ways that we don't fully comprehend. And it, I don't really have a problem with that, with where she ends up with her picture, because the idea she's using that Romans 8 picture then to critique a theology that would try to say everything in such a way that somebody's inevitably oppressed. Say that. Say the last part again. Say it one more time. Uh, that through the Spirit, we have, and remember in the artwork that she's displaying, and actually in theology in general, through the Middle Ages into the Reformation, the Spirit is neglected the most. But it's through the Spirit that we have this union with God in such a way that we're in Christ, we have a relationship to the Father, where we've given up control of our life. We've allowed room for God's grace to both operate on us and to cooperate with us so that we can become Christians, we can become transformed into the image of Christ. And if we realize that's what Christianity is, and that is necessary to even doing theology, then we're already saying no to those types of ontotheology that necessarily oppress people because we're trying to explain a complete system of mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, her her she's working out in conjunction, I think, with a lot of different theologians, an alternative to a phallocentrism and ontotheology, uh, and it comes then. Uh, with a kind of humility, and maybe is that is that in the end the main thing of this that that we learn a kind of humility before the authority of God uh, that does not presume to to know or to have to know. Yes, yeah. So she, some of her other work deals with submission and powers and those types of things. And in include, conclusion, you begin to realize, well, there's nothing that's about being male and female that necessarily a part of God's plan requires uh, the female to submit to the male as being greater or above, but actually the male and the female submit to one another as we submit as humans to God. So that's a picture of humility, and that submission for her, at least in God's sexuality and the self, is through prayer, through being willing to be changed by prayer. Is that submission in our maleness and femaleness of an infinite proportion? That is, is it, uh, I'm asking something very simple here. Uh, our maleness and femaleness is not one we shed in a resurrection body. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? You know, she doesn't get into these types of questions, but, um, yeah, when Paul says no male or no female after there's no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, what he seems to be talking about is cultural forms that are attached to maleness and femaleness, such that what you know being male and female doesn't necessarily mean that oppression or that there's a, there's no hierarchy there for Paul, in other words, right, at an right. ontological level. And so that's what you mean, yes. <laughs> and and uh, that neither marrying or giving in marriage is not an obliteration of gender; 
it's just an, uh, an undoing of a particular mode of, of gender. Yes. Yeah, I think so. So, which is her, and this is sort of her beginning point is if everything about us has changed up in Christ so that we truly become human, wouldn't, you know, gender is included in that as well. Mm-hmm. Now let's, uh, you know, at the end of this, let's get a little bit practical. And I, I know you have, uh, with this, that we're, we, we may be, it, this may all sound very academic, but I think what we're describing is something that can bring practical healing into people's lives. Because the, the way that we all experience sin has to do with our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, there, there is then the, the, the you know, that we're twisted and we're all twisted, you know, in the same way, but it may manifest itself in any number of variety of ways. I'm wondering in your role as a pastor, as one who has to deal with people with gender issues, uh, how this how this sort of conversation might play into counseling someone. Hmm. Yeah, I think actually it's a, and I know you've experienced this too, it's amazing to see people shed these ideological shackles, really, uh, that are telling them because you're a woman or because you're a man, you have to act this way. And I think it actually goes both ways, that some men are just so relieved that they don't have to be this oppressive, authoritative figure in the household or in their relationship and women, likewise, are so thankful that, oh, that's really not what Scripture is saying. Um, and I always, N.T. Wright has just a wonderful, I don't know what it is. It's an article. I think it's a speech that he actually delivered when the, Anglic- the Church of England was debating over uh, women bishops. But he goes through the key passages in the New Testament, like in First Corinthians, First Timothy, and so on, that talk about women in ways that have historically been seen as justification for some type of oppression. And he explains that actually that's something that we have read in much later and that isn't there in the passage at all. And um, I think that is sort of the idea that, sure, we live in cultures even today, believe it or not, that are oppressive towards women and oppressive towards men in the way that they're sort of expected to be these authority, authoritative figures and whatnot. And we may give a nod to, okay, this is the culture in the world that we live into and submit in some ways to the laws or uh, some people's objections. But in the way that we submit by actually male and female submitting to each other and males and females submitting to God in love, we're undermining that system. John Howard Yoder, of course, talks about revolutionary subordination, and he's not the only one. Uh, that as we participate in the Trinity or as we're Christ-like, even in submission to the powers and authorities, we're already undermining them. And I think the same thing needs to happen uh, with these gender roles today, especially in you know, Protestant churches who seem to have a real problem with this. Now, you're, are you saying this specifically in reference to passages such as in First Timothy? Yes. Yeah, N.T. Wright does such a, just a wonderful job actually explaining how uh, the point of what Paul is saying, much less than telling women to be silent forevermore, is if there's any objection to women teaching, perhaps because some men think they don't know what they're talking about, well, then by all means, let them learn so that they can teach. <laughs> um, and 
you know, there's a way of reading that that is true to the grammar. And I think in T. Wright shows it's rather true to the flow of the book as a whole that makes a lot more sense to other passages of scripture. One like the Galatians one that we've quoted several times, but also just other passages where women are obviously active in teaching and preaching in churches in the first century. And so the revolutionary subordination of Yoder is that, I mean, when Yoder's talking about that, he's talking about it in the passages in Romans regarding government. Uh, not just that, but usually we think of that subordination as one that takes place in regard to forces outside of the church. Mm. Um, and what you're describing, I mean, certainly there is this mutual subordination, but the revolutionary subordination, the one that upsets the structures of the society as a whole, isn't that one that, that takes place then in regard to the principalities and powers that are out there? Well, uh, Yoder actually does extend this to male and female relations and, and marriage, and uh, he's talking about cultural norms. And there's a the word in Galatians, I can't think of the, the stoichia, I believe is what the word is, sort of the fundamental principles, uh, something like that is a really rough translation. This is in Galatians, as Paul is discussing what it means to be Christian in relationship to the powers, and this all surrounds the topic of gender as well. And the idea is it's not simply those powers that are embodied in Caesar or a president or a military, something like that. But there's, there's also some other type of power at work. Not necessarily, I mean, obviously there's a, an allusion there to uh, Satan or the demonic, and that's sort of behind all of this. But there's also these powers that just seem to be the fallen fundamental principles, the way that fallen people think the world works. And uh -huh. I think that clearly extends into like marriage and male and female relationships. And uh -huh. the way that that's overturned is not by just completely saying, well, we're going to live in a society that doesn't even, you know, doesn't acknowledge that this is how most people think, but rather one who says, okay, we can still conform to some of these structures but do so with the love of Christ in such a way that it actually undoes the structure. So, uh, you know, in the first century, a male could kill his wife, and that was completely legal because he had ownership of her, much like somebody would have ownership of a slave. Once Paul says, husbands love your wives with the love of Christ, you realize there's no ownership any longer. So Paul isn't saying, go tear up all the legal contracts. He's simply saying they're not valid in the same way because of what Christ has done, who Christ is, and now who we are. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's heavy. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I've just been, uh, I just brought up the uh, Yoder again, that, it, uh, that I wonder if Coakley, you know, once you relinquish a kind of ontotheology, then, you, then the discussion arises as to how truth establishes itself, or how do we recognize the truth? Um, you know, how, what is, or even how does the truth function for us? Because I think all of these things are changed up once we relinquish this kind of, you know, uh, modernist uh, or, or an ontotheological understanding. 
And and I think one of the key insights of Yoder, and or it's just there in the New Testament, is that there is the sense that Christ and those in Christ, as we are discussing right now, that there is this continually there there is this continual upsetting or overturning of the structures of the society, of even the definitions of of value or or truth even. And that this is itself then the process of Christ bringing all things in subjection to himself. But that's a process that we are participating in yes. and that we're witnessing witnessing it as it unfolds. Yes. Yeah. Much of our conversation is taking place in Colossians chapter 1. because that's And I think maybe there's a key aspect of this. We keep referencing Yoder and... Yoder is working all of this out sort of on an ethical level or an ethical historical level. Coakley, what I think is so wonderful about her book is that she realizes that all of our questions should be directed towards the practical, the ethical. What does this mean for us? But she was she is unwilling to give up the fact that we need some type of metaphysics to make sure all of this works out. And that's what Paul does in Colossians 1. So he talks about how we bear fruit and we grow from the knowledge of God, but we only uh, we gain the knowledge of God as we walk worthy of our calling. So the ethical and uh, our knowledge or the intellectual is tied up together there. And then as the chapter progresses in verses 15 through 20, you have this early Christian hymn, uh, what some people speculate that it is. Anyway, it's just five verses of very deep, metaphysical insights about the universe from a Christian perspective. And this is where he puts Jesus in relation to the cosmos and how he is above it, created it, holding it together and making those powers subject to him. So I think you need both things. And um, maybe that Coakley is doing that in a way that could definitely be built upon that. I think a good critique maybe of Yoder's work would be, uh, this is all good, but where is the metaphysics? Where Where is Christian doctrine? Where is, you know, what makes all of this make sense rather than simply identifying, well, this is what Jesus did, and so this is how that fits into our lives, which I think is Yoder's strength. I, I'm curious, though, that, you know, when you obviously we need uh, uh, to rely on a particular metaphysic. But isn't the danger then in saying exactly what that is to fall back into an ontotheology? Oh, yes, I think so. So that's probably, of course, that's what Yoder's reacting to. So the whole, I think probably the reason that he is not dealing in metaphysics is because he's in some way trying to come up with a response to ontotheology. And so how would Coakley bypass that problem? Uh, mysticism. <laughs> that, that's her answer. So I'm not saying that that has to be the answer. I think that actually in the end, she may, she's better than that, of course, because she's not talking about just an out and out, completely uncontrolled mysticism, but she's talking about a Romans 8 model for prayer. Now, just saying that, I mean, I've said that several times, I realize sort of leaves some to be wanted. What does that mean? Um, you know, it is the Christian life lived out. Maybe Paul in Colossians gives the better answer there, that to have any knowledge of God, you have to be following Christ. 
but to be following Christ in a way that bears fruit and allows for growth, you have to have a knowledge of God. The idea being that, uh, you know, to go maybe in Thomas Aquinas or something is that God both, God's grace rather, both operates on us. So we're being changed by him. We're being conformed. We're being justified. But also then as we continuously strive to become more like Christ, God continues to cooperate with us. So that becomes possible in our life. Yeah, but knowing God is not a uh, 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 an intellectual capacity, but knowing God is a, a relational capacity that is inclusive of the intellect. Is that yeah, it's a idea? way of existing. Yeah, it's a way of existing. So, you know, very Kierkegaardian, too. Kierkegaard spends 10 years in university because he wants to study everything, you know, oh. and he just can't quite bring himself to just finish up that theology degree because he's studying philosophy and languages when you know, his father, it may actually be, I forget the timeline if his father dies first, but anyway, something to do with the father's illness impending death or death forces him to think, okay, I've got to do this for my dad. And he graduates really quickly then with a degree in theology. What you get in Kierkegaard is this just eminently practical, funny, earthy, uh, almost visceral literature. And yet, all the way through it, there's this awareness of a metaphysical structure that makes sense of it all. And so I think the two really have to be brought together and balanced and realizing that that has not happened. So there seems to be either maybe with, um, I actually, I don't know if you could even characterize it in terms of Protestantism or Catholicism or Orthodoxy or anything like that, but you do at times get a turn towards just the metaphysical to an extent that we're forgetting that we're actually human subject. We're humans in existence and that we have to deal with uh-huh. existence, not just metaphysics. And that's sort of Kierkegaard's critique of Hegelianism. Uh, uh-huh. But on the other hand, you know, there's a type of Christianity that focuses on the ethical to an extent that it essentially becomes a type of Christian pragmatism. Not that it's pragmatic by the world world standards, but it's, how do you be a Christian? Well, you you know you do these things, and that's what makes it work out. And you're warning us away from a Yoder's. You know, this is I I think the profound failure with Yoder in his personal life, and ultimately in his theology, that by not giving us a metaphysic, by you know in some way focusing exclusively as he tended to do on the ethical and the practical. He gives us, he returns us then to a kind of, you know, his whole project is almost over and against theological liberalism. Mm -hmm. And yet in the strangest fashion, it's almost like he he lands back into a theological liberalism. Yeah, I think so. And so uh, maybe maybe just uh, help me here as we conclude this thing, that what we mean here by metaphysic, like in the passage in Colossians, he holds all things together by his powerful word. That's a, that's a statement, that's a metaphysical statement. I believe that, but it, it's not necessarily the case that I can fully apprehend or say what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So a Christian metaphysics is one in which we're making doctrinal assertions about who God is, about who Jesus is, not to fully define God in any way, 
but rather just we just do it enough to be able to read the Gospels and follow the Christ that we meet there and who is Lord today. And and yet, you know, you know, I, you gotta, you just gotta appreciate his ability to to be so careful in in describing. I mean, if you could bring those two things together, that we we do see the encounter and challenge of Christ in regard to the principalities and powers, and uh, that that is a way, in fact, of a pointer to the universal truth which is Christ but isn't that isn't that universal truth one that is always working itself out and we cannot presume to say beforehand how it works out yeah I think that's right so with Kierkegaard we can just say well we're followers I mean we're truth is on the way and we're simply followers of the way that's a wonderful place to end (laughs) John Good conversation. Oh, good.